Welcome to the last edition in 2020 of Common Ground, a talk show that encourages debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and today we begin our podcast-only format. We bring you a conversation with a man who has profoundly influenced Berlin and transatlantic relations for many decades, former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, John Kornblum. He joins us via Zoom from his home in Nashville. Welcome, John. Good morning. You're certainly no stranger to Berliners, given your many years here. But there are certainly many people who don't know much about your life before you came to Berlin. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, the grandson of four immigrants from Europe, two from Germany and two from England, and grew up in the 1950s and 1960s in the very classic American atmosphere, then um, joined the Foreign Service quite young. I was 21 when I entered the Foreign Service. And so... Why did you decide to go on a diplomatic track? Well, it wasn't anything normal for me. My father was an engineer, in fact, and uh, worked in the automobile industry, as everybody in Detroit still does, actually. I think it was two things. I think it was President John F. Kennedy, who stimulated all of us to consider public service. And secondly, it was uh, some professors I had, I I went to Michigan State University, not the University of Michigan, but I had some very good professors there who said to me, um, I would be somebody who should be interested in the Foreign Service. So I took the test and passed it. Very simple. Uh, You had mentioned your familial connection to Germany. Had you been to Germany as a youngster growing up? No, not at all. We lived in Michigan and uh, we, the furthest that we ever went was to go to Canada, which was right across the Detroit River. No, I had not been anywhere, really, uh, until I went to Washington to sign in at the State Department. Well, you certainly ended up in Germany and in Europe and played a key role in a number of defining historical moments leading up to the end of the Cold War. Which ones stand out for you? Well, I had a great good fortune of coming along and coming along very young, right as the, shall we say, the Cold War was entering its most dramatic, but also its uh, ending phase. The first thing that I did uh, was as a 26-year-old, I was on the delegation to the Quadrupartite Agreement in Berlin. I thought that I would never, ever have anything as exciting as that again. But then I came along and I went to the State Department and they hired me to be on Henry Kissinger's policy planning staff. And in that job, I was one of the many people who worked on and drafted on the Helsinki Final Act uh, of the CSCE, which was a very big event. But I think probably if you look at it from the long-term impact of it, uh, the speech by Ronald Reagan in front of the Brandenburg Gate and the role I played in that was uh, my biggest achievement. Well, before you tell us about that role, let's play a part of that memorable speech. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The reason that Ronald Reagan stood there in front of the Brandenburg Gate and gave the speech that he did was because in the mid-1980s, 
there was a major confrontation between the Soviet Union and the West over something called intermediate nuclear weapons. And we won. We did station our weapons, but it, that also uh, the Russians played the threat card very strongly. It is not just yet today that the Russians have been interfering in domestic politics in the West. They were doing it very much so in G Germany in those years also. So things were getting a little bit tense between Germany and the West. Uh, there were many people in Germany who said there had been such a confrontation. We, we should do something. We should make a deal with the Russians now when we can. And we, of course, were quite against that. And so I did come up with the idea of, I said, what we need is a very dramatic statement by Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate. The fact is Ronald Reagan was coming to Berlin on that day, June 12th. But had it not been for this political background, he would have gone to a school or a university or a factory or something and given a nice speech about how Berlin and America are good friends. Uh, it was, in fact, the very tense situation in Europe, which turned a visit to Berlin and the speech itself into a major political event. The biggest job was to make sure that everybody agreed that he could stand in front of the Brandenburg Gate, which was in East Berlin. Some may remember, it was right on the border between Bezirk uh, Mitte and Bezirk Schaffenberg. And um, the German foreign ministry was very much against it. They sent delegations to Washington to ask them not to put him there because everyone thought it would be a provocation. Even some of my friends in the State Department were against it. How did Ronald Reagan feel about it? I don't know. I didn't, obviously didn't ask him, but I was talking with his advance people. And in the end, this is a true story, um, they came for one last time after all these delegations from Germany. And uh, I figured out the best thing I can do is sell this to them on TV angles. So I took them to two or three other spots where he could speak, which were very boring spots. And then I took them about, oh, um, 300 meters or so away from the spot where the speaking stand would be. And I said, and I literally did like I'd seen on television. I, I said, do this, look here, look at the camera and see what this would look like in the TV camera. And they did that. And there was a guy called Bud Henkel, who was a very good guy, who was the head of the advance group there. And he said, that's it. There's no other space. I don't care what they say. He's going to stand right there. And so that was it. And the argument that the Berlin authorities in particular used against this was that security would be very bad there. But the other important thing you need to remember about that situation was that under the occupation rules of that time, the three allies were in charge of the police. And so in this case, it was in the British sector, so the British were in charge of it. So we just said to the police, could you guarantee the security? And they said, of course we can. And there was nothing that the Berlin mayor could say about this. So we drew up the security perimeter. We had lots of uh, bulletproof glass around the president. We had uh, 40,000 Berliners come to see it. To this day, the mayor of that time denies that there were 40,000. He said there were only 15,000 and, and they were all from the American uh, military. It's not true at all. We had 40,000 people. And I know many people today who come up to me and say, you know, I was standing there. But what I'm leading up to is that this was not exactly a friendly event between us and the authorities in Berlin. And this is part of the 
factor, uh, the way that German-American relations have gone over the past 75 years, and that is that every once in a while we have to push very hard because the German authorities, and it's perfectly natural, I'm not even being critical about it, are very cautious. And so it was this, if you will, this American um, energy and this American disruptive behavior, which actually led to several important uh, aspects of the post-war period. But I think this speech in Berlin was the most dramatic. It's the one that which is now gone down in history. It's now considered one of the great speeches of the 20th century, et cetera, et cetera. But from my point of view, it was a very difficult job to make sure that it was all pulled off. Well, I don't know if you were aware of it, but actually the open this gate part of the speech ended up becoming part of a popular song that made fun of the Berlin airport and the fact that they were taking so long to open it. So they were using the soundtrack to sort of push the thing along. Oh, is that right? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Open this gate. Seid mal ein bisschen tolerant und nervt nicht rum mit dem Termin, die Mühlen mal anders in Berlin. That was my first story, or one of my first stories in Berlin when I came here for NPR, and I used that actually because I thought that was so uh, amazing that, <laughs> that Ronald Reagan, you know, was being used to try and get the Berlin airport moving along. It was interesting to read that you as the U.S. minister in West Berlin were deeply involved in two very dramatic prisoner and spy exchanges on the Glienicke Bridge in 1985 and 1986. Tell us about those. Yeah, well, those were um, arranged in Berlin for a simple reason, but another a reason, again, tied to the very strange situation in Berlin. There were not very many places where we could hand spies over to Russia or get them back from Russia. And the first uh, spy exchange on that bridge took place in 1961. There was a very good movie made about it not too many years ago, a couple of years ago. With Tom Hanks. With Tom Hanks, right. So we had, uh, in 1985 and 86, there were, there were two very different situations. The 1986 um, event was not really an exchange. It was a release of a Soviet dissident, Anatoly Sharansky. And in return, we did, in fact, release four Soviet spies, two Russians and, and two um, Czech people, I think it was. But it was timed so that there was no exchange. Sharansky came first, got into a car and drove off and went to the airport and left Berlin within a half hour. We waited an hour there on the bridge and it was February, it was extremely cold that day, very cold. Then we uh, sent the four Soviet spies back across into uh, East German territory. The exchange in 1985 was something much different. It was done partially because we on the American side had a bad conscience. There had been some uh, military intelligence people in Southern Germany who would recruit former GDR residents, people who had somehow gotten out of the GDR, to go back in, which they could. There were agreements which allowed them to do that and then take pictures for them of what was going on there. These were, this was such low-level intelligence that it didn't matter to anybody. But the East Germans, of course, had listened to all the phones, and they knew exactly what was happening. And so before we knew it, we had 25 people in prison in East Germany. We on the civilian side said that just won't work. So that we started with a fairly long negotiation. It took about two years to get, to get the negotiations done. A couple of the people we were sending back were really very high quality Soviet spies. And the, 
the FBI in the United States didn't want to let them go, but in the end, we were able to do it. And there it was a standard thing. The two trucks with the people drove up onto the bridge. And I had a great moment in my life when I went over to the east and got into the, the bus where there were 25 people sitting there. And I said to them in German, I'm a representative of the president of the United States of America. And I'm here to tell you that you're going to be released. What was their reaction? They didn't really know that until that moment. They were so used to being herded around, they didn't know what was going on. And so there was, of course, you can imagine sort of pandemonium broke out in the, uh, in the bus. And um, the bus started up with me and also uh, Richard Bird, our ambassador, was there. And we drove across the bridge and they got into another bus then and off they went. They were flown out of Berlin immediately also because of the fear that there might be some uh, retribution by the East if we, if we kept them in Berlin. And then the same thing happened. Then the, um, this time it was six, I think. The six um, Eastern spies got into a bus and drove back into East Germany. For all the various things that I've done in my career, this is the one that people ask the most about because it's the most uh, dramatic, I suppose. It looks like movies. It sort of did look like movies, actually. Well, certainly deserving of a soundtrack. Like, I'm, try I'm just sort of hearing Bridge of Spies music in my head, you know, with Tom Hanks. <laughs> no, it was, it was, for us who were doing it, much of that first one, the 1986 one, was frustration. We were sitting in Washington trying to get the deal done, and there was always, in fact, my good friend who was our negotiator in the thing was uh, Richard Barkley, who was the head of the political section in the embassy in Bonn. And uh, he, he once had to fly down to South Africa for some reason. I, I, he told me, but I can't remember what it was, as part of this deal. So it was a very frustrating negotiation. It was not something very exciting and dramatic. It took us two years to get it done. And uh, these poor people were sitting in jail that whole time. So the result was wonderful. We were just so pleased that it worked. But it was a lot of very frustrating work to leading up to it. Well, certainly that euphoria was even greater in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And I think you were in Brussels at the time. And this is what you told CNN was your first reaction. And so I'll be very honest with you, besides being happy that it came down, because I was at NATO, my first question is, are we in danger? Because nobody had believed that this would ever come down peacefully. And so being at NATO, and then the very next day we had a big contingency meeting, make sure all the forces were there and everything, because nobody really knew what was going to happen. How has your thinking about the wall coming down changed since then? I can tell you as someone who worked on these issues for many, many years, the situation inside the Soviet bloc was anything but positive. People were suffering, people were going to jail, people were dying. And so it was simply something that was going to happen anyway, sooner or later, and we were very happy that it did happen. Since then, uh, things have gone essentially very well. Uh, the Eastern European countries have become uh, peaceful and prosperous and more or less democratic. But I think we're coming to a new era now. 30 years is already a generation in human history. We're coming into a new era where we're going to have to rethink many of the assumptions that we had about what the world was going to be like after the end of the Cold War. It wasn't the ultimate end of the disputes about democracy, for example. In the Berliner Morgenpost on the day of the U.S. presidential election, 
You wrote that we have, quote, basically misjudged all the consequences of the collapse of communism 30 years ago. That's a pretty dire message. I mean, what did you mean by that? You recall there was a, a, a book written by someone that said this is the end of history. We thought literally that we had defeated all of the negative forces in the world and that the march of Western liberal democracy was going to be untethered and that we were all going to live together happily in a very happily democratic world. That was a very ahistorical way of looking at the world. It's not, the world isn't such a simple place. The other thing that we didn't misjudge, we just simply didn't know that it was going to happen. And that is the uh, very uh, dramatic digital revolution, which has changed things really uh, fundamentally and is changing them more rapidly than we can even imagine. And so many of the um, assumptions that we had in 1992 or 95 or 97 simply are overtaken by events uh, because of the digital revolution. Is there anything that you would do differently in your Cold War efforts, and we've talked about a number of them, if you had the chance to do a do-over? Well, I wouldn't have had the chance to do much like that, but is there something that we didn't do correctly? I don't know. It's, It's a very hard thing to answer, and it's still being debated by many people this day. There was a group of people, also many of them in the U.S. government, who felt that we had militarized the Cold War too much, that it would have been better if we had tried to engage the Russians in more dialogue, et cetera. That may be, except for the fact that the dialogue didn't work in those days, and that for the first 25 years of the Cold War, the Russians were really preoccupied by putting down democratic revolts in their own area of control in Budapest, in Warsaw, in East Berlin, And so um, I actually don't think there's much that we could have done differently. While you were ambassador between 1997 and 2001, you got to do something that no other modern-day U.S. diplomat has done here, and that is to open a U.S. embassy in Berlin. How did you come to choose Paris Abdatz? Well, first, um, this is an interesting little detail. The first American ambassador to open an embassy in Berlin was John Quincy Adams. And uh, so I was the second. And uh, uh, we chose the spot because we owned the land. Uh, the American embassy before World War II, before the, um, we entered the war, was on the exact same spot that it is now. The fact is we hadn't owned that land very long. We bought it in the late 1920s. So it was not the long traditional home of the American embassy. But we did own the spot and it happened to be one of the most strategic spots in the entire city. And uh, we maintained title to it. The East Germans accepted our title to it. We were always the owners, even when it was part of East Germany. And there were some people who said that we shouldn't build there. And I, in fact, had a very, probably the most difficult and unpleasant part of my stay in my, all my years in Berlin was the battle I had with the Berlin Senat again to get them to accept the uh, security requirements that we had for building our embassy on Parisa Platz. It was a very long running, it took two years and uh, at certain times, not very pleasant discussion I had with the Berliners. So, but that is a a spot, as you know now, and you see it, it's right there on the Brandenburg Gate. Right across the street is the French embassy, around the corner is the British embassy, up the street a little ways is the Russian embassy. The Hungarian embassy is over in another corner. In other words, it's a very embassy-rich corner 
but it is also is about as dramatic a place as you could be. And if you go up to the top of the new American embassy, which I'm very proud of, uh, the ambassador's office has a beautiful view over the Brandenburg Gate to the Reichstag. So it's also a very picturesque and also very politically meaningful spot that that embassy is located in. The magazine Der Spiegel noted in a 2008 article that the embassy became a screen onto which German essayists and critics projected their concerns over American foreign policy. Do you think that's still the case today, or do you think that there's now a truce, basically, that's been reached between Americans and Berliners over that? Oh, I think everybody's forgotten all the controversy about it. But American embassies are always targets in countries all over the world. That's one of the reasons why we have to take our security so seriously. Uh, And the fact is that the United States has become such an organic part of the life of Germany and especially Berlin, that we're often there, not just for what we're doing. And we know in the past four years, we haven't had the best of relations, shall we say. But often we're there as the target for frustrations the Germans have about themselves. Uh, there are many cases when this has happened. And so it's part of the fact about being in Germany, about being the American representative in Germany, that you have to realize that we're not just another foreign country who has an embassy in the country, but we are in many ways part of the political fabric of the country. And uh, there was a, a very well-known CU politician who has died a few years ago, Walter Leisler Keep who once wrote a book in which he said the relationship with the United States is the second constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany. And I think that's probably true. And so that leads to lots of closeness in the relations, but it also leads to lots of friction because we're often uh, either blamed for what we've done or criticized for what we've not done. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, John Kornblum, about his role in establishing American Public Radio in Berlin, and about the future of the Atlantic world, and specifically U.S.-German relations. Stay tuned. Now's a great time to tap into some of KCRW's best work. Hear in-depth interviews with the creative minds that drive Hollywood on the business and the treatment. Break away from the dominant media landscape with Our Body Politic, a news and politics show by and for women of color. And don't miss Press Play with award-winning host Madeline Brand. There's more to love, so keep it tuned to KCRW. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me from Nashville is former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, John Kornblum. As I mentioned earlier in the show, you not only left your stamp on Berlin as a U.S. ambassador, but as the co-founder of KCRW Berlin. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed reminds us how it all started. KCRW Berlin was actually the last chapter of an American radio tradition in Berlin that dates back 75 years to the end of World War II. It's time to open AFN's Germany Notebook. Information. The English-speaking American Armed Forces Network Berlin entertained U.S. troops and Germans who were exposed to American radio for the first time. The Great 88 AFN-FM Berlin presents Disco. 
AFN was a source of American pop and rock music, as well as classical music. It was a popular station in Berlin for many years, as well as in the communist German Democratic Republic. Both AFN and RIAS, or Radio in the American Sector, ended their programming in Berlin after reunification in 1990. You're listening to NPR Berlin 104.1. I'm Monika Müller-Kroll. Independent American Public Radio began broadcasting in the German capital in 2006, when the U.S. network, National Public Radio, hit the airwaves. In 2017, the Santa Monica-based KCRW, which is part of the NPR network, partnered with a group of key donors on public radio fans in Berlin to take over the frequency. You're listening to KCRW Berlin on 104.1 FM. Representing cutting-edge U.S. public radio with an eclectic mix of news, talk, and arts programming. KCRW Berlin, 104.1 FM, is the capital's new radio station featuring music, news, and culture in English. One of the new station's co-founders was former U.S. Ambassador John Kornblum. We offer Berliners of all cultural backgrounds the chance to broaden their horizons to understand the United States more, but also to build their own cultural community in Berlin around the one thing which unites them, that is internationalism and the English language. KCRW Berlin on 104.1 FM went off air on December 13th, 2020. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed. John, that date was truly a sad moment for me as the KCRW Berlin program director and, of course, as an avid public radio fan. It can't have been easy for you either. No, well, it was very disappointing because we put a lot of work into it. And I was one of the people who worked hard in uh, 2006 to get the NPR wire program here in Berlin first. And so it is very disappointing, but it, it shows, I'll give you two seconds of a little bit of history of this. It shows how complex foreign policy is in the United States in this case. You had some quotes from uh, AFN. I felt over the years that AFN Berlin was probably the best foreign policy instrument that the United States had ever thought up. And of course, it wasn't thought up as a foreign policy instrument, but I can't, to, to this day, people come to me and say, I was a big AFN fan. I loved AFN. I know people who used to hang around at the AFN studios down inside the Bundesstrasse because they just wanted to be near the station. Uh, and I tried uh, as ambassador to find some way of keeping AFN on the air after the uh, American troops left. And it turned out, unfortunately, and it has a lot to do with rights. And you as a radio person know all about rights. AFN can only be on the air in places where American forces are stationed. And after um, September 1994, there were no longer any American forces in Berlin. And so the AFN was simply legally could not be on the air anymore. At the same time, RIAS Radio in the American Sector, which also operated under an American license, had to be transferred to German control on that day. And the federal German government said, why don't you just keep the station and keep running it as an American radio station in, in Berlin? I, of course, was very much in favor of that. But again, American public affairs people in foreign policy don't understand the importance of some of these things. And so everybody said, no, it'll cost us too much money. We don't want to do it. So RIAS then disappeared as an independent station. 
That's why we worked very hard in the beginning of the 2000s because of this long history and the long, very important role that American radio played in Berlin. We tried and succeeded in getting NPR Berlin on the air and now for various reasons, having a lot to do with also everything that's going on in the United States, it's no longer possible to keep that going, which I find very unfortunate. Uh, and I hope that we will be able to find some way of keeping an American voice uh, on the, uh, these days you can't say the airwaves, but maybe on the digital waves uh, as a way of keeping up this kind of dialogue that we've had on radio for such a long time. American public radio has gone from Berlin, but have you moved back to the U.S. permanently? We have a permanent house here, but we're here in the United States right now because of the coronavirus, actually. Uh, we decided that if we had to be quarantined for a good deal of time, and we didn't realize how long it was going to be, it would be simply be a little bit more comfortable to be here in our house, which is in a very green, leafy part of Nashville, which is a, a medium-sized city. So, no, we still live in Berlin. We still have an apartment. Our son is living in that apartment at the moment. Is this the longest you've been away from Berlin then because of the pandemic? I mean, it's the longest that I haven't been back to the States. I know that. Well, it's the longest that I've been away in the last 20 years. But there was a fairly long period in the uh, 80s and 90s when I didn't come to Berlin at all. It was about 10 years that I, between 87 and 97, which when I... Maybe I had been in Berlin one or, once or twice on very short visits, but I essentially was not in Berlin in those years. I was doing other things. So, uh, but we have lived now permanently, and I mean permanently, we have all of our home and everything is there in Berlin since 1999. So it's now 21 years. And uh, this is the longest that we've been away, obviously, since then. And uh, But we'll be back as soon as... Hopefully the virus is going to be controlled by the uh, vaccine and we'll be back. Well, as you mentioned, the pandemic has certainly made 2020 the most challenging of years, and not just for KCRW Berlin or for you and me, but for transatlantic relations. What are the notable moments this year for you, if we can talk about 2020 for a moment? Unfortunately, uh, over the past four years, all of American policy, not just foreign policy, has been focused on the personality of the president. He wants it that way, and he goes to great efforts to make it that way. And so if you look uh, over the past year, I think you would have to say that first the coronavirus is the, the not just the major event, it's the historic event of this past year. But I would also say that um, despite some much of the criticism of Germany, which the president, who after all is of German extraction himself, has levied at Germany. The fact that Germany has managed the situation <clears throat> relatively better than lots of other countries, I know it's not considered satisfactory there either, which it shouldn't be, but it's still been relatively better than others, has led to a great increase in the interest in Germany and the respect for Germany. And now, of course, we have the first virus, uh, first vaccine, excuse me, which is uh, being marketed and everything by the Pfizer company, which is also a company started by German immigrants to the United States. But the virus, the vaccine itself was developed in Germany. So in the human to human, people to people way of doing things, 2020 has been a constructive thing for German-American relations. People have seen how closely related we are to Germany and how much 
something like a vaccine can come out of the very highly developed scientific community in Germany. So if we look forward, though, what do you see as the future of transatlantic relations and the Atlantic world if we get this virus under control, which, as you mentioned, with the vaccines coming, there's certainly a strong likelihood of that. Well, the Atlantic world and Atlantic relations are so important that they're often made the scapegoat for things which they don't have too much to do with. In other words, the community that we're in, the relationships that we have are there. They're sometimes more successful than other times. Sometimes American presidents and German chancellors get along better or worse. George W. Bush and Gerhard Schroeder didn't get along very well. Neither did Helmut Schmidt and Jimmy Carter get along very well. And it's interesting to note that uh, John F. Kennedy and Conrad Adenauer didn't get along very well. Because we've had so much success, we tend to believe that there has always to be harmony there, and that's simply not the case. But we have recovered from many things. World War II was one of them, for example. The Atlantic world was in pretty bad shape during World War II. We navigated the Cold War very successfully. We navigated the post-Cold War period very successfully. So I think that we need to have a lot of confidence about what we have achieved. But, then it's a big but, the world is now changing very dramatically. Corona is the most dramatic example of that, but it's not the only example. The digital world is jumbling up relations between peoples, between countries, jumbling relations inside countries, as we know in our own country, with the role that uh, sometimes uh, places like Twitter and Facebook play. And so we're going to be coming into a whole new era where we have to redefine who we are and we have to have new roadmaps of what, how we're going to get where we want to go. That's going to be very, very hard. So I, I actually think there's probably going to be more uh, difficulties across the Atlantic, but also inside Europe, for example, we can see that much of the foundation on which the European Union was founded is now starting to come under, under strain because not every country wants to obey the rules as they, they actually signed up to do. So we're coming into a very, very difficult period, a period where rationality is not always going to play the major role. And so that, again, is why we need to communicate. And that, again, is why uh, we were so hopeful for KCRW, because it was a way to communicate. But there's no uh, alternative but to keep talking about things as much and as often and as openly as possible. You penned an op-ed recently for Die Welt am Sonntag, a newspaper, about incoming U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who you've actually worked with. Do you see him as being someone who can help restore some of that balance, especially the hurt and frayed feelings here in Germany, of which there are many over uh, U.S.-German relations? Yes, I do. Well, I see President-elect uh, and soon-to-be President Biden, who I also know quite well, as a person who not only can do it, but has stated very openly that he is going to go back, he hopes at least he's able to do it, to the more close friendship-like foundation of Atlantic relations and that the Atlantic community is no longer going to be a place where the United States uh, makes uh, demands or charges against its allies. And I think that uh, Joe Biden is going to make a very big difference as is Tony Blinken. The problem is, however, that this part of it, that is restoring relations to their 
emotional, a positive emotional uh, situation, that's only half the picture. Because if you then look at the agenda which is facing our governments, be it uh, Corona, of course, but also climate change, also refugees, also the entire regulation of the internet, uh, data, privacy, things like that. We have a very large agenda which is built around, that is, uh, things which are new to us in which our governments are not necessarily very capable of dealing with, not because they're not capable people, because it's just also new. We don't even have the vocabulary for many of the things that we're trying to talk about. So I think it's going to be a period which is going to test everybody's skills. And that's why I'm so happy that uh, Joe Biden has really almost for the first time in recent history appointed a national security team, a diplomatic team, which is filled with people who have experience and know what it's all about. And so I think that we have the best starting point for a good dialogue and for some success. But I think that we would be doing ourselves a disservice, also doing our governments a disservice if we thought that just because now they're smiling at each other and shaking each other's hands, that everything's gonna be fine because it's not. There's just too many difficult things on the agenda for it to be fine all the time. Well, I think 2021 is going to be as interesting, if not more interesting than 2020 was. Thank you, John, for sharing your memories and insights. We look forward to seeing you again in Berlin soon, I hope. I do too. As soon as we can, we'll be back. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground episodes are available as podcasts, so download them wherever you get yours. Enjoy the rest of the year, and we hope to catch up with you in 2021.